0: Numbers, that's the fourth book of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. Most of you know that on Sunday mornings, unless the Lord intercepts with something else, uh, we've been going through the life of Moses. Again, it was Moses that God used to deliver Israel from Egypt. And then it was Moses that God used to to direct Israel through the wilderness And so we're learning about this man, Moses. And just a few weeks ago, we came into the book of Numbers. Uh, It's called that because it's all about numbers. Numbers of tribes and numbers of people in tribes. Uh, Numbers of battles and numbers of soldiers. Uh, It's all about numbers. God does keep track of numbers. And so a whole book is written on that. Having said that, we are in Numbers chapter 5, and uh, in two very strange verses. And as I read this chapter this past week, I thought, okay, Lord, there's got to be a message in that. And so I'd like to uh, have us read together verse 27 and 28. Again, if uh, you'd read together with me, reading out loud verse 27 and 28. Let's start there in verse 27. And when he hath made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she be defiled and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thighs shall rot, and the woman shall be a curse among her people. And if the woman be not defiled but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, without a doubt, uh, this is an odd Part of our Bible, and yet it's in the Bible. You recorded it here for a reason. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to stand back and learn something from it and other odd passages just like it. Help us, Lord. Again, I'm so grateful for your faithfulness. And Lord, I'm grateful for the faithfulness of so many people. I pray, bless each one who has made a priority to begin their week in the house of God. Help us. Speak to our hearts, challenge us. May we hear from heaven today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know that uh, it was in the book of Exodus where God delivered Israel from their bondage. But the remainder of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, we know that God began to give some guidelines for Israel. And if they followed God's guidelines, God could bless them, God could help them, Well, when we get here to Numbers chapter 5, and that's particularly begins in verse 11 all the way to the end of the chapter, God gave a very strange prescription. And uh, the prescription was for a husband who was jealous of his wife. And so it begins by telling us back there, look in verse number 12. The Bible says, again, Numbers 5 and verse 12, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him. So it's suggesting that a man's wife has been unfaithful. It's suggesting that a man's wife has gotten eyes for another man and she has turned aside and the husband has become jealous of his wife. Now, it, it allows the possibility that his jealousy is unfounded. It allows the possibility that this husband just thinks that his wife has been unfaithful, but she's never been unfaithful. And so it gives a prescription that if a, if a husband thinks his wife has been unfaithful, then he's supposed to take her to the tabernacle. He's supposed to take an offering with him with her to the tabernacle and, uh, and through a process, and we'll see it in a few minutes, but through a, po- a process that priest takes a cup and he puts some holy water in that cup. And then he reaches down into the floor of the tabernacle and it was sand. And he takes some of the dust from the floor of that tabernacle and he puts it in that cup And he mixes that little brew. And he hands that brew to this woman, He's his wife. He's at her sitting in a chair. And he said, I want you to hold this. And this priest before this woman that's being accused of being unfaithful, uh, this priest says that if you're guilty of this thing, if indeed you have been unfaithful to your husband, then when you drink this, it's going to become a curse in you. And it's going to cause your belly to swell. And it's going to cause your thigh to rot. Uh, but he said, if you're not guilty, he said, you're really just drinking muddy water. Because he said, this brew won't have any effect on you whatsoever. In fact, the second verse that we read in our opening, look there in verse 28. Verse 28. And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, so she isn't guilty of this charge, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. So this strange mixture could go one of two ways. And you say, Pastor, from a medical standpoint, how is it possible that you would drink dirty water? And if you're guilty of a sin, this dirty water would cause that kind of a reaction in your body. And yet, if you're innocent, drinking that exact same water causes nothing. Pastor, how do you explain that? You can't explain that other than God said that that would happen. You know, without a doubt, that's one strange cup to drink from. Probably all of us at one time or another have drank some strange brews. I I listed some that I have in my life. I would call Buckley's cough syrup. I would call that a strange brew. How many of you have ever had Buckley's cough syrup? Uh, I Honest, they don't make it as potent as they used to. I remember when I was a kid, and, and you think, well, preacher, you're a pastor. How dare you say that? When I was a kid, I didn't always want to go to church. I was trained to always go to church, but I didn't always want to. And uh, there was the occasional Sunday morning that I would get up. And uh, I would say, Mom, I don't, think, I don't think I can be able to go to church today. And she said, oh, that's terrible. Why? I said, I've got a sore throat. She said, I've got something that will fix that. She went and got Buckley's cough syrup. And you know the mere mention of Buckley's cough syrup? Uh, you might drink it uh, just as, as a thrill. No one drank it as a thrill when I was a kid. My mom said, we're going to give you two tablespoons. Of... I said, Mom, it's amazing. It's... I think it's gotten better already. And she said, well, just to make sure it stays better, we're going to give you this anyway. Well, my brother and I, we would kid ourselves that after you took Buckley's cough syrup, you could open the window... And you could breathe fire out of that. I, I would consider Buckley's cough syrup a strange brew. Uh, someone one time told me about barley green. Now, if you drink barley green, just kind of turn, zone me out for a minute. Uh, they said if you will take this barley green and mix it in water, then it will make you feel healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, after I tried it just a few times, I preferred being sick and poor and stupid, Uh, I'll tell you what, now you say, well, I've gotten used to it, good for you, and if I find any extra in our cupboards, we'll send it all to you. I think that that is a strange brew. Someone many years ago introduced our family to Hunniger, and Hunniger is a mixture of honey and apple cider, vinegar, and water, and for years, it it takes a little while to get used to it. The first time I think that you try to drink Hunniger you ask yourself, why would I do this to me? But you know what, uh, you kind of accrue a taste, and I think I took it for years, and, and I was convinced it helped me, until one day a blood analysis lady said, sir, with your blood type, this does not help you. And I think that was a bit of a relief that I had that blood type. I would consider that a strange I've told you this before, that, uh, that uh, one time I got poison ivy, and uh, it lasted about two weeks. And a dear, precious lady in our church, she's in heaven now, uh, so God's forgiven her of all this. Uh, but she came to me and she said, uh, I could tell you how to get rid of poison ivy. And I said, how's that? And she said, if you will take three or four cloves of poison ivy, and if you will put them in your mouth, chew them up, and swallow that, it'll make you all better. And and I didn't know, I, I thought of that question that Joshua asked, the angel of the Lord in Joshua 5, art thou for us or against us? That question came to mind, and, and she it was as sincere as you could be. And I said, thank you. That's when she told it to me in the church. And uh, I think... Uh, a couple days passed, and she said, have you tried it? I, I forgot all about the conversation. I said, have you tried what? She said, eating some cloves of poison ivy. I said, you know what? I just haven't got around to it yet. And she said, okay. The next morning, she knocked on our front door. My wife wasn't home, and so I met her at the front door, and she had a little Ziploc baggie of cloves of poison Listen, these things caused me trouble for two weeks. Why would I want, she said, Pastor, this will help you. I said, well, thank you. I took it, I thought I would just take it over to that round bin that we have in the kitchen. And she said, no, I'm not leaving until I see you take it. This was going to take more than the sleight of hand to pull this one off. And so she came in, she followed me right into the kitchen. And I thought, Lord, there's no getting out of this one. And I get, and I put those cloves in my mouth, I chewed them up, and I swallowed them. Pastor, what happened next? I ushered her to the door, and I thanked her for how kind she was in helping me. When I shut that door, I went back to the kitchen, and I began to I'm sure I had gallon, if not gallons of water. Now, the poison ivy did go away in a few days. You say, Preacher, there is no telling. There's no telling. The better question is, would I ever try that remedy again? No. And when I told my father-in-law what I did, he's looking for stuff on his son-in-law. When I told my father-in-law what I did, he said, listen, don't tell anybody that you are related to me. I would call that a strange brew. Uh, when I was younger and my stomach could handle it, I would, I would go to 7-Eleven and mix all the different flavors, and we called it swamp water. Now, maybe you used to drink that. I've come to the age where I'm a little wiser. i call that a strange brew. i call that a strange brew. Uh, you know, uh, for many Christmases, uh, our family would get together with Pastor Haley and his wife and we would go to the Swiss Chalet in Winnipeg. Now, I I guess we don't do it anymore because Swiss Chalet closed. Probably because they found out what we did. But after our family finished the meal, uh, Brother Haley, he, he took, I think, he took a half a glass of water and he added to it every kind of hot sauce that could be found in the Swiss Chalet. Poured some of the gravy, the Swiss Chalet gravy poured some of the brown gravy. He put some salt and put some pepper, put some hot sauce, every kind of potion that he could put, he put it in there and then he put a spoon and he mixed it up. And I remember he looked at my son, Ben, and he said, now, Ben, if you're a real man, you'll be able to drink this and keep it down. I already attested, I said, I'm not, I'm a mouse, I pass, but... Brother Haley and Ben drank of this brew, this strange brew, and listen, if you asked them, maybe they were sick to their stomach, they didn't let anybody know. We're talking about some strange cups to drink from. Do you know, it might be, I've never touched alcohol in my life. If it was part of a medicine, then that would be the exception. I can't take credit for that. I had a dad and mom that scared me about touching alcohol. But maybe there's some here that in your lost days, you had some strange brews that you drank. I'd like to preach this morning on this title for you that take notes. My title is Some Strange Cups in Our Bible. Some strange cups in our Bible. And we're going to begin with this one. There are Numbers 5 in verse 24. Again, Numbers 5, verse 24, And he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter water that causeth the curse. And the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. You'd have to admit that this is one strange cup that's identified in the Bible. You know, it turns out to be one of the many rituals that those Jews were prescribed In their Jewish life, God told them that if a married man thought, now I have to emphasize the word thought, he had no evidence that his wife had been unfaithful, he had no uh, substance that he could have put his fingers on. Uh, But back there, if you would, verse 14. Numbers chapter 5 and verse 14, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him. So, this cup had to do with jealousy. And it says, and the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. And so it could go either way. And uh, here, these hus- uh, this husband, he's got the idea that his wife has been unfaithful. And so, sure enough, he was told to bring her to the priest. Now again, he was supposed to bring some kind of an offering. Look at verse 15. The Bible says, Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy. And so again, this husband who suspected that his wife had been unfaithful, Uh, This began this process. And uh, as that priest, uh, again, took that holy water and put some dust in there and mixed it up, he would then hand that cup to this wife who was being accused. And he would say to her, he would say, God has prescribed this. If you have been unfaithful to your husband, then this will bring a curse upon your life. If you have not been unfaithful to your husband, then there will be no curse that follows this. So this cup could bring a cursing, or it could bring a blessing. Pastor, how could it bring a blessing? Because God promised that if she was innocent, that she would, uh, God would bless her with a child. And uh, yet uh, tradition says, and, and I'm not sure how much we can count on tradition but tradition says look there in verse 23 numbers 523 and the priest shall write these curses in a book and he shall blot them out with the bitter water so again this this priest after he's just told his wife if you have been guilty then drinking this will bring a curse if you are innocent it will not bring any curse Didn't you know what the priest told that woman that she was supposed to say? Look at the end of verse 22. It says, and the woman shall say, amen, amen. That was putting her confirmation on what this priest just said. Well, then the priest would write in a book this curse. And this priest would take some of the water that was in that cup and if you would, sprinkle it on what he just wrote as a curse. And then he would hold that book that he's just written over that cup until those words that were written with that water, that, that little mixture too would run in that cup. And then he'd make her drink it. And you'd say, well, preacher, I don't believe in all that hocus-pocus this is God. God said that cup would either bring a curse or bring a blessing. You say, oh, preacher, how do you explain that? We can only explain that because God said that that would happen. And again, if she was innocent, look again at verse number 28. And if the woman be not defiled but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. Again, I'm preaching this morning on some strange cups in our Bible. And if you're taking notes, the very first strange cup in our Bible is the green-eyed cup of jealousy. The green-eyed cup of jealousy. You know, you say, Pastor, why would you preach on that this morning? Well, first of all, it's our next text. If we're going to preach through the, these books, we're eventually going to cover it all. But you know, there's some practical truths that we find in this story. Could I give you some things? First of all, God's curse is upon those who are unfaithful outside of their marriage. Listen, if you are married this morning, then God expects you, sir, to be faithful to your wife. And ma'am, if you are married this morning, then God expects you to be faithful to your husband. And God makes it very clear that if you aren't faithful to your wife, to your husband, God's curse is upon you. That hasn't changed in the 3,500 years since that was written. I know that society says it's okay. I know that this generation has approved of infidelity. I know that the Hollywood has put their stamp on that kind of lifestyle. But could I remind you that God has not changed his mind since God had this chapter written. God expects you and I to be faithful to our husband and to our wife. And uh, we live in the 21st century. And, and the world would laugh at what I'm preaching. But I need to remind you, if you're a Christian, that God doesn't laugh at it. God was prepared to make a woman's, uh, her, her belly uh, swell and her thigh rot. And you say, I thought that we serve a loving God. God is a loving God. But God hates sin. Uh, Over there in 1 Corinthians 7, we won't turn to it, if you write the reference down, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Outside of a marriage, you have no right to touch. Outside of a marriage, you have no right for a relationship. Outside of my marriage and your marriage, you have no right to shop around to look for someone else. God's curse is upon somebody that does that. That's why we uphold high standards in dating. Because in dating, if you begin to touch one that you're not married to, you are on a path that's going to lead to disaster. That's why we preach fidelity during marriage. And uh, why? Because if you show an interest in somebody else you're not married to, you have now stepped on a path that's trouble. I'm saying God expects you, sir, to be 100% faithful to your wife. And God expects you, ma'am, to be 100% faithful to your husband. The Bible says marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Uh, I say, first of all, God's curse is upon those that are unfaithful outside their marriage. Now, it might not happen right away. You know, the second truth that we learn from this is God will bring that sin to the surface. Again, God will bring that sin to the surface. Uh, We're not told how long before this man brought his wife to the tabernacle, We're not told how long before she committed it, if she committed it. We're not told if this was week old news, if this was month old news. We're not told if this came to surface a year later or five years later. But you know, there is no statute of limitations on this sin. And I understand what I'm saying. There, There are folks that have done this kind of thing in the long, long past, and they think that time has a way of fixing this kind of sin. May I say to you that if you have this kind of sin in your past, if I have this kind of sin in my past, time will not fix it. It takes a repentant heart. David was guilty of this sin. David, as a king, took another man's wife, Bathsheba, and in one night, David broke God's commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, From what we understand, 2 Samuel chapter 11, David tried to hide it for a year, but a year of time passing, as far as God's concern, did not put away that sin. Now, preacher, why would you preach on this? Because there are churches in this city. There are churches in this province. There are churches in this country that have now begun to turn a blind eye to adultery that's taking place in the membership of their church. And I'm saying as soon as you turn a blind eye to that kind of thing, then that church has the curse of God upon that church. I'm not just talking about members in the pew. I'm talking even about leadership in a church. God cannot bless it. God cannot bless that church. It must be dealt with. And so I say, first of all, that uh, God hasn't changed his mind. God's curse is still on the sin. Secondly... God will bring this sin to the surface. Uh, The third thing, we're not told why she committed adultery. Again, she might not have. But we're not told why. Because it doesn't matter why. Adultery is still adultery. She might have tried to say, well, my husband is always gone in god's sight that does not excuse adultery she might have tried to convince others well my wife or sorry my husband just isn't very romantic in god's sight that doesn't justify adultery Uh, she might have tried to convince herself and others that uh, you know what i think He is unfaithful. Do you know your mate being unfaithful does not excuse you being unfaithful? Uh, There's all kinds of excuses that she, if she was guilty, that she might have tried to give. Uh, She might have said, my husband's abusive. In God's sight, that doesn't justify adultery. She might have said, my husband is negligent. She might have said, my husband is sickly. It doesn't matter what her reason was. Again, if she was guilty, it doesn't matter what her reason was. There is no reason for God to be unfaithful in your marriage. Now, folks, we need to know that, and we need to be reminded of that. Although it's true that a man or a woman that gets too busy for their mate is inviting trouble in their marriage. That's true. Although it's true that uh, any man or woman who uh, thinks that they are above temptation, so goes to places that are tempting, they are setting themselves on a path of trouble. I'm saying, third, we're not told why she committed adultery, because it doesn't matter why. I give you four things. We're, We're just trying to get something practical from here. Uh, Not only is adultery still a sin, not only God will bring that to the surface, not only we're not told why she committed adultery. Uh, Could I say this? If she was innocent, she had nothing to hide. If she was innocent, she had nothing to hide. Uh, The interesting thing is uh, we aren't told why he was suspicious. Remember, he had no grounds. He had no concrete evidence. Uh, Maybe this man saw his wife spending an unusual amount of time talking to some other man. Maybe this husband saw that. Uh, Maybe this husband looked on his phone bill. I'm sure they had phone bills back then. Uh, Maybe this husband looked on his phone bill and saw a strange number continuously showing up, and he knew he had made the call. Maybe this husband saw some picture of another man that she had in her purse. Uh, we're not told why. But could I say if she was innocent, she wouldn't have feared investigation. Now, if your husband, your wife doesn't trust you, and and I know that there are some people who are jealous beyond reason. I understand that. But if there's a husband or wife that isn't trusted then sir that's your homework to work on and if your wife doesn't trust you if your husband doesn't trust you it would do good in your marriage to sit them down and say listen i have been faithful there's no one else but how can i convince you of that i'm saying fourth if she was innocent she had no fear in this process it might have hurt her feelings That her husband didn't trust her, but she shouldn't have felt threatened. And it's it's the husband that won't answer questions from his wife. It's the wife that won't answer questions from her husband. That's the one that you need to worry about. And so again, the fourth thing is, if she was innocent, uh, then she had nothing to hide. Uh, But the fifth thing, if, if she'd come to him to her husband admitting her sin, if instead of waiting for her husband to get jealous, for him to take his wife to the priest, for him to bring this offering, if this woman had simply gone to her husband and said, listen, I have to tell you something you probably never wished you heard. I've been unfaithful. Folks, the course of that could have brought forgiveness. I'm not saying it's easy to forgive a mate. I'm not saying that would be easy. But that would be the right path. And I don't know who I'm speaking to. I don't know if there's one that's listening to my voice. And no one knows it, but you have been unfaithful in your marriage. Don't wait another day. Take the right path. Don't wait till it brings a curse upon yourself and your family. I say it's a strange brew. I'm uh, preaching this morning on uh, uh, some strange cups in our Bible. And the first strange cup is the green-eyed cup of jealousy. If you're married this morning, could I remind you of the vows that you made? You promised to love, honor, and cherish Forsaking all others, keep thee only unto him, to her, so long as you both shall live. That was a vow that you made to each other. That was a vow that you made to God. Some years ago, there was a well-known magazine that did a survey of married men. And they asked these married men uh, which part of their marriage vow they felt was the toughest to keep. You know, 19% said the toughest part of the vow that I made was in sickness or in health. God bless a husband. God bless a wife who, though their mate gets sickly, they're still faithful. God bless you for it. May that be true about each one of us. May we not use the excuse of their sickness why it's okay for us to look around. Uh, nineteen, Another 19% that were surveyed said the toughest part was to love them for richer or for poorer. Some of them said, since I got married, I got poorer. And so they said, that's the toughest part. But you know, that's 19, plus 19. Do you know that 60% of those men that were polled said the toughest part of their marriage vow was to forsake all others. Listen, when you got married, when I got married, when you tied the knot, when you said, I do or I will, when you exchanged rings, when you signed that marriage license, your shopping days for someone else were over. And I know that this is a very tempting, provocative Promiscuous world, but there shouldn't be a day started where you don't ask God in prayer. God, help me to be faithful to you. Help me to be faithful to my mate. And you say, well, preacher, I, I've I've never actually stepped out and been unfaithful, but you know you can be unfaithful with your eyes. You can look at things that you should never look at. The Bible says over there in Matthew chapter five. He that looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery in his heart already with her. I'm saying that there shouldn't be a day that passes, sir, and there shouldn't be a day that passes, ma'am, if you're a Christian, that your morning prayer doesn't include God to help me to be faithful to you all day. God, help me to be faithful to that one that I married. It's a strange brew. Now, God's not making people drink that stuff anymore. How many would we see walking around with a swollen belly and a rotten thigh, if it were? But God expects fidelity in your marriage. I say we're looking at some strange cups in the Bible And the very first cup is a green-eyed cup of jealousy. The world might say, well, we're just seeing if we're compatible, and that's why we're living together. I can't tell you in this last few years of the number of preachers. I'm talking about my crowd now. The number of preachers and the number of evangelists the number of missionaries that it's come to the surface that they were guilty of this very kind of sin. God hates it. And Folks, we need to hate it too. I give you a second strange brew, uh, strange cup. Look there, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. Well, preacher, I, I don't understand how this is fitting for a Sunday message. It's in the text. And I think the more that this world pushes their their lifestyle, I think we that are preachers better start pushing back. The very first cup that's strange is the green-eyed cup of jealousy. Uh, Could I give you a second cup? Look there in Proverbs 23 and verse number 31. Again, Proverbs 23 and verse 31. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, When it moveth itself aright, uh, at the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. The first cup was a green-eyed cup of jealousy. If you're taking notes, the second cup is the red-eyed cup of liquor. If you take a cup of liquor to your lips, you have invited the curse of God upon your life. Now now we're wading into something that a lot of contemporary Christians are going to put up a wall and say, I can't believe that you'd preach against that. I've talked to some preachers over the last couple of months about various things, and you'd be surprised how many independent Baptist churches are struggling with this idea that liquor should never be touched. I talked to a preacher, if I mention his name, you'd know him, but his name is not necessary for the illustration. This preacher recently implemented in his church some requirements of leadership for his church. He said, I I have not put this out for all the membership. Uh, uh," He said, I certainly hope they would follow it. But he said, I put out uh, requirements for leadership. He said, Sunday school teachers and, of course, deacons, of course, pastor of any kind of leadership in the church. And he said, I required of them that they not touch liquor, that they not drink it, that they not serve it, that they not sell it, that they not partake of it, and he said, at the end of my list of requirements, he said, I told them that I need this back by a certain date, signed by you, that you will not, and that was just one of several things. And I said, what, what are some of the other He talked about being faithful to the church and, and, and reading the Bible and having devotions. And, but he said, Brother Carlson, you wouldn't believe how many leaders won't sign it. They don't want to hand it back. And I said, what do you think it is? He said, I already know what it is for two of them. It's liquor. He said, they have convinced themselves that a social drink once in a while is okay. Would you look there again at Luke, or sorry, Proverbs 23 and verse 31? The Bible says, look not thou upon the wine when it is red." The writer of this said, don't even look at it, leave alone don't drink it. He said, don't look at it, leave alone don't touch it. He said, don't look at it, leave alone don't serve it. He said, don't even look at it, leave alone don't sell it. Folks, that's a pretty stringent and a pretty obvious statement in the Scriptures, if you're not even to look at it, do you know there are many people that now don't see anything wrong with it? Could I say to you that the Lord sees much wrong with it? Uh, Someone is called uh, liquor the devil in liquid form. <laughs> do you know liquor has drained more blood because of violent fights? Liquor has plunged more people into... Financial bankruptcy. Liquor has broken more weddings. Liquor has twisted more limbs because of car accidents. Liquor has dishonored more womanhood. Liquor has hung more crepe on caskets. Liquor has emboldened more villains to steal. Liquor has defiled more innocent people liquor has dethroned more common sense and reason liquor has broken more hearts liquor has forced the early sale of more homes liquor has slain more children liquor has blinded more eyes liquor has wrecked more men liquor has driven more to suicide And liquor has dug more graves than any other reason that there is. Liquor has done that. And so if you are naive enough to say, well, there is no clear scripture against it. There is all kinds of scripture against it. Look not thou upon the wine. Pastor, what could possibly be wrong with looking at it? Well, look there in Proverbs 23 and verse number 32. At the last, that's at the end of the liquor road. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thy heart shall utter perverse things. I'm saying to you, it'll destroy you. The second strange cup in our Bible is the red-eyed cup of liquor we all know the name Noah Bible says Noah was perfect and righteous in his generation when God looked down on a world in Genesis 6 where every imagination of the thoughts of their heart were only evil God found one man named Noah and his family that were different than all the world. And God said, I'm going to destroy this world. And we're familiar with that. Uh, We aren't given a list of all the sins that they were involved in in Genesis 6. Without a doubt, one of those sins had to be liquor. And God decided, I'm going to destroy this world but I'm going to spare this man, Noah, his wife, his three sons, their wives. And we know over the next number of years that Noah built this ark. That ark was to the saving of his eight in his household. That ark was to the saving of of animals, two by two, seven clean. And I'm saying to you that, uh, that God hated that kind of life, that he was prepared to destroy it. Well, they get in the ark. God shuts the door. The rain begins to fall 40 days and 40 nights. They didn't get out of that ark on day 41. They were in that ark over one year. And after one year, they finally are released from that ark. They are given a new chapter of life. Whatever happened before, this was a new beginning. The Bible tells us as they came out of that ark that Noah sowed a vineyard. Noah, you know what that did to this world before this flood. I am sure that Noah convinced himself, this vineyard is for grapes. I will only use it for grape juice I will never use it once it ferments into a liquor or to a wine. I'm sure he convinced himself that he would be careful with grape juice. But you know, it was just a matter of time till the Bible says that Noah began to drink of the wine. He talked himself from only juice from the fruit. He, he talked himself from staying there to an occasional drink was okay. To a social drink would be fine. And the Bible before Genesis 9 is finished says he got drunken in his tent. And he removed his clothes to the place where he was naked in his tent and his son ham came by that tent and before that chapter is done ham's lineage has been cursed and it brought the curse of god how did that happen because somebody got careless and thought a little bit would be okay may i remind you the only safe position with liquor is none not one drop Never, ever, none. (laughs) Now, I know that's radical. But you know, if you don't take one drink, that drink can never take you. If you don't take one sip, that sip will never lead to a drink and it'll never lead to a drunken night and that'll never lead to a, I was going to say, plethora of other sins. Your safety is to not, look on it, not touch it, not drink it, not serve it, not sell it. I was speaking to a good Christian man. I don't question he's a good Christian man. And I, I went on this rant about not one drop, never, ever, never, ever. And this man looked, he didn't attend our church, he attended another place, and and, and uh, he said to me, well, that would be except for the Lord's Supper, <laughs> I said, no, we don't have liquor in the Lord's Supper either. Now, we're not going to park on this, but when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and 1 Corinthians, and those are the accounts and the records of the Lord's Supper, it never once called it wine. It always called it fruit of the vine. And every time that we find that term, fruit of the vine, It's always freshly squeezed grape juice, always, always, always. Could you imagine us having the Lord's Supper? Could you imagine us serving intoxicating wine in the Lord's Supper? And some dear man, some dear woman who can remember a period of their life when they were ensnared in liquor and only by the grace of God got out Could you imagine them being snared back into it by the Lord's Supper because somebody foolishly used intoxicating wine? And so when the man said, except for the Lord's Supper, (laughs) I thought it's on, it's on. Folks, don't touch it. Not one drop. Why would you throw away a good Christian heritage that you can pass to your children because of liquor. I say the second strange cup is the red-eyed cup of liquor. Well, preacher, I, I, I can't find any clear verse. Proverbs 20 and verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Proverbs 23 and verse 20. Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of the flesh. Proverbs 23, verse 21. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe the men with rags. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15. woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 14, And Eli said unto her, this is unto Hannah, And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thy handmaid for a daughter of Belial. Folks, Belial's the devil. And here, Hannah was being falsely accused of having drunk, drinking. And she said, don't count me as one of the daughters of the devil. I've not touched it. I've not gone anywhere near it. I say that one verse, it says, woe. You know the word woe? It means stop. I don't ride horses. I'm told if you train a horse and you say woe, it stops. You know the word woe means stop. It means don't go a step further. Ahead is sorrow and misery and trouble and pain. How many verses have a woe associated with liquor? Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning that they may follow strong drink that continue until until night, till wine inflame them. Woe unto them that giveth his neighbor drink. It's woe. Stop right there. Don't go any further. Now, I have to say these things because there is a new generation, even in this church, you are being bombarded by every kind of media that a little liquor is okay. It will rob you of the joy of your home. It will drive you to do foolish and unholy things. I read about these two young men. They went to a zoo in Calcutta, India. It was back in January of 1996. These young men were in their 20s. And they crossed over a moat that surrounded the tiger's enclosure. In there was a 13-year-old royal Bengal tiger. Why would they cross it? Well, they wanted to put a marigold garland around the neck of that tiger as a New Year's Eve greeting. sorry, a New Year's greeting, and and people watched. And they watched as these two young men inside that tiger's cage were weaving around the front of that tiger with a garland in their hand trying to put it over the neck of that tiger. Well, the tiger lunged at one of them. And when he lunged at that one, the other decided to all protect my friend. And so the other one started kicking the tiger in the face. So the tiger released the first and attacked the second one and killed the second one. And a bystander said, I saw it all. The tiger turned and jumped on the other young man and put its jaw around the man's neck, and within moments he was dead. What would cause two 20 year olds to do that? Liquor. Liquor will take your reasoning. It will take away your inhibitions. Liquor will cause you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't do. It'll cause you to curse God. It'll cause you to look at other women. Or ladies, look at other men. I'm saying that is the curse of liquor. Do you know if you uh, read uh, much about old time revivals... There were great preachers like Billy Sunday and Sam Jones and Mordecai Ham and Cyclone Mac that they would make a point at least one night in their meetings and preach against what's wrong with a dirty liquor bottle. And because of that preaching, it literally made counties go dry. Not 95% dry, but completely dry. Why? They knew that drunkenness is not a fruit of the Spirit. But drunkenness is a work of the flesh. It'll destroy you. We know that there's two nations, Moabites and Ammonites. Do you know those two nations are the children of Lot? When Lot, with his daughters, because of liquor, he impregnated his own daughters, Folks, liquor will destroy you. Now, I, I say, preacher, who are you preaching? I have no idea. Maybe in your refrigerator, back on the bottom shelf, maybe you're right tucked in the back, maybe you've got a couple of cans or a couple of bottles. You are going to destroy your home. Well, preacher, it's just for social occasions. Someone said, I drank for happiness and became unhappy. I drank for joy and became miserable. I drank for sociability and became argumentative. I drank for sophistication and became obnoxious. I drank for sleep and woke up tired. I drank for strength and felt weak. I drank for confidence and became doubtful. I drank to make conversation easier, but I slurred my speech. I drank to feel heavenly, but I ended up feeling like I was in hell. If you're a young person looking still to marry, when you find out that he drinks or she drinks, keep looking. Head down the road. You say, preacher, it's just an occasional. That's what Noah thought. We can celebrate. We came out of the ark. I give you a third thing. I'm done with this, and I'm out of time. Look there in 1 Corinthians 11. Again, we're looking at some strange cups in our Bible. Now, if you are not convinced these are strange cups, and you'll hesitate to uh, warn your children. If you understand that these have, can bring the curse of God on someone's life, then you will warn your children. And I recognize when our children are out of our home, all that we have is a power of influence. I understand that. And, and sometimes we wonder if we even have that left. But may I say to you, in, with every ounce of energy that you have, we need to keep faithfulness in our marriage so our children will. And we need to keep the liquor out of our homes in hopes that our children will. I give you the last thing, and I'll be brief with this. 1 Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight. 1 Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight. But let a man examine himself, <clears throat> excuse me, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. There's another cup. Do you know there's a number of other cups we won't see them, I'll but mention them. There's a cup of suffering. We know that Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me that cup was the suffering that Jesus was about to go to through and you know if you're a Christian we may have to drink of the cup of suffering so there's a cup of suffering there's a cup of salvation if you have trusted Christ as your savior you have drunk of that cup uh, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord uh, there's a cup of God's blessings Why wouldn't we want to partake of that? David in Psalm 23, Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Uh, In the tribulation, there will be the cup of God's wrath. God will pour out his wrath on this world. But the last cup here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, I call this the penetrating eye of communion. We've seen a green eye, we've seen a red eye. Now this is a penetrating eye. Now each of these cups had the ability to bring the curse of God upon you. You know that last supper that Jesus had with his apostles? They partook of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus said to them, very soon I'm going to be gone. And I want you to repeat this. And in a church setting, we're given instruction by the Apostle Paul that we are from time to time, consider the Lord's Supper. We do it around here about every four months. But uh, when we take those elements, the Bible says we're first supposed to examine ourselves. We're supposed to first look into our heart and ask ourselves if everything's okay. Do you know if everything is okay in your heart, that cup is a cup of blessing. But you know, if you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, and there's something that's not right in our heart, that same cup that is a blessing to others can be a curse to us. A lot of times Christians in their life they just get into a ritual and if some lost person says why do you start your day with Bible reading mm, I don't really know we've just always done it this way that's a ritual why do you pray bow your heads and pray every time before you eat I well, I don't really know That's just a ritual why is it that you go to church three times a week I don't really know that's I guess it's just a ritual Why do you spend hard-earned money to send missionaries around the world? Do you know a lot of people don't know why? It's just a ritual. You know, when we have the Lord's Supper, it causes us to examine our hearts to see, if is this Christian life just a ritual? Do we do what we do only because it's always been done that way? I heard about this young preacher. He was asked to become the pastor of a church. Uh, the previous pastor had pastored 30 plus years and retired. And so this young preacher, he was called upon to be a pastor. He never pastored before. And uh, in short order, he uh, realized as a pastor of a church, they should have the Lord's Supper. And so he did what he thought was necessary in the Lord's Supper. and. Uh, they, this particular church had it every week. And so sure enough, that very first week, he had the Lord's Supper, and, and yet right after it, he, he could tell the people were upset. And he had no idea why. So he went to uh, one of the leaders, and he said, I, I, I haven't been here but a week, but I, I can tell something's wrong. I have a feeling that there's something's terribly wrong. And the man in the church that he said that to, he said, well, pastor, that's true. I hate to say it, but it's the way that you do communion. And this young preacher thinks to himself, he said, oh, I did it the way the Bible says. And he said, what do you mean? Well, it's not so much what you do in communion, it's what you've left out. And the young preacher said, what I've left out? He said, I don't think I've left anything out. Well, in this church, they literally had a loaf of bread, and they they broke it. They literally had one cup. It was a silver cup, and that's what they put the juice in. And this man in the church said, before our pastor let the people take a drink out of the cup, he always went there over to the radiator, and he clanged that cup on the radiator. And he said, you didn't do that. And this young preacher said, listen. There's no radiator in the scriptures. That is craziness. He said, no, that's the way it's to be done. And this preacher, young preacher, so befuddled, he, he went to his home, picked up his phone, called the previous pastor, and he said, I, I think these people are mad at me already. And that previous pastor said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it's about the communion service. He said, well, why are they mad? He said, they tell me that before you let people drink of that cup, You always went over the radiator and clanged it. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. And you know that old preacher said, oh, that's silly. He said, I knew everybody was going to drink of the cup, and I didn't want them to get a shock. So I just touched that radiator to get all that shockableness out of it. He went back to the church. That church was absolutely convinced that that was a part of the communion service. They were so stuck in a rut about the ritual that they totally missed examining your heart. Can I say to you, we've looked at three strange cups. The first cup is a green-eyed cup of jealousy. If you're married, are you faithful in your marriage? The second one was the red-eyed cup of liquor. Maybe this world has convinced you just a little bit's okay. No amount is okay. Maybe in your Christian life, Christianity has just become a ritual. And if somebody asked you, why is it that you do what you do? Always done it this way. The only way we've ever seen it. You need something that's more personal than that.